Services Bureau is a minus 5.2%. So among those service, service touches about the information, electronics, and software sect, uh, sectors have picked up speed. So, so I would say the 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 GDP number uh, maybe more or less along the line, but the debt is right now is very high. I would say for the local government and the the uh, the, uh, the city municipal governments. So the the government loans uh, could be uh, issued in the in, in, in ahead of time, and that's why the recent political bureau, uh, you know, issued a new policy to uh, and also PBOC. Uh, will issue more more debts for uh, the uh, the special you know uh, treasuries uh, uh, government treasury loans and also the gov- the, the local bureau uh, loans. So okay. that will help uh, the local revenue. Yeah. Yanan, thank you very much. Sadly, we run out of time, but good to talk to you. That's Yanan Wu, who's chairman of Zhenrong Bao. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio Three. Final look at the markets for this morning in Australia. The SX200 uh, is down about a third of a percent at the moment. The Nikkei 225, though, in Japan, still up one and a third percent. The Cosby in South Korea up about 0.7 percent. Futures markets indicating that the Hang Seng is going to add about 100 points when it opens in an hour's time. And in the commodities markets, Brink crude oil is trading at $21.44 a barrel, and gold right now uh, is at $1,724 an do stay tuned for back chat after the 8.30 uh, news with Hugh Chiverton and Mike Rouse. The weather forecast, sunny periods and hazy, hot and dry during the day, maximum temperature of 28 degrees. And the outlook is for it to be warm with sunny periods in the next couple of days. The temperature right now, 23 degrees and it's 82% relative humidity. It's coming up to 8.32. Here's Samantha Butler with the half-hour news. The Italian Prime Minister Giuseppe Conti has announced measures to ease the coronavirus lockdown starting in a week's time. They include allowing restaurants and bars to serve takeaway food, not just for delivery. Funerals can be held with up to 15 family members in attendance and close relatives wearing masks can visit each other in small numbers. Mr Conti said Italy, the first country to go into nationwide lockdown, had to get back on its feet after seven weeks. In the coming weeks and the coming months, we must lay the foundations for the reopening of the country. We must therefore respect the recommendations. We must roll up our sleeves, and I assure you that the government will do its part. We need an intense program of reforms. This must be an opportunity to radically change all those things that have not been working in our country for a long time. The governor of the U.S. state of Maryland says his administration received hundreds of calls from residents asking about injecting or ingesting disinfectant after President Trump speculated it could treat coronavirus. In an interview on CBS, Larry Hogan, who's from the president's Republican Party, said they were wondering whether it could protect them. The mixed messaging, I've raised concerns uh, multiple times about um, conflicting messages. We had hundreds of calls uh, in, our, in our hotline here in Maryland about people asking about injecting or ingesting uh, these uh, disinfectants, which is uh, you know, hard, to, hard to imagine that people thought that that was serious. Chile says it'll go ahead with a controversial plan to issue release certificates that would allow people who recover from COVID-19 to return to work. The World Health Organization has warned there's no evidence that getting the new coronavirus will give people immunity. Here's the BBC's Leonardo Rocha. Chile's Deputy Health Minister Paula Daza said she was aware of the WHO warning 
but she believed that those who had already been infected with the virus had their chances of contracting it again greatly reduced. Ms. Daza said the permits were being prepared and would be delivered soon. Chile acted early to curb the spread of the virus. The government imposed tough quarantine measures more than a month ago, including an overnight curfew. Like many leaders around the world, President Sebastián Piñera is now under increasing pressure to reopen the country for business. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Bank Chat. I'm Hugh Chivers and your co-host today is Mike Rouse. Mike, good morning to you. Good morning, Hugh. How do countries beat the virus? After some four months of experience, what are we learning about the effectiveness of different approaches in different places? When are lockdowns appropriate, for example, and how tough should they be? What about the roles of monitoring, testing, contact tracing? Are they good at certain times and places, but inappropriate at others? And from a disease point of view, disease control point of view, should patients be treated at home or hospital? Will it ever end without herd immunity? Should we just hold out for a vaccine? Who should be quarantined? Who, well, we're going to be talking about the experiences of China, New Zealand, Malaysia and other places this morning. Who's getting it right? Who's failing? Let us know your thoughts, your questions and your answers. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Bankchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can email us, bankchat at rthk.hk or you can call us and our telephone number is 233-88266. That's 233-88266. Joining us for the first part of the programme, we have with us now Professor Ben Cowling, Head of the Division of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the University of Hong Kong and Aaron Dambasu, who's Associate Professor of Epidemiology and Environmental Health at the University of Canterbury in in New Zealand and uh, others will be joining us uh, in the second part of the programme uh, after nine o'clock. Uh, just some uh, emails first that have come in uh, in between programmes. This is from uh, Juan uh, who says, the peer-reviewed uh, Lancet published an editorial exploring the quick, this is on 18th of April, uh, exploring the quick containment of COVID-19 in China, calling it impressive, citing aggressive public health interventions, early detection of cases, contact tracing and population behaviour change as paramount to China's success. China's experience, according to the Lancet, sets an encouraging example for other countries. Unfortunately, Western government officials and politicians are wasting precious time trying to deflect the blame for their own political mistakes onto China, when they should instead study this example and heed the advice of international public health care experts and spend more time on saving lives. It's sad that some people put ideology above science and reason at this critical time when we're all at risk of a prolonged pandemic. However, it's still encouraging to see the experts of the Lancet are not deterred by poison political narratives with malicious intent. Those guardians of science deserve our respect. At the end of the day, everyone has the right to choose to listen to President Trump and believe that people could inject disinfectant into their bodies or use just very powerful light uh, on or even inside the body to kill the virus. Who would you trust, expert at the Lancet or Dr Trump? That comes uh, from uh, one. Uh, Sherman says AP reported that doctors struggle to say true to science but not cross Trump, unquote. According to the Washington Post, under Trump, coronavirus scientists can speak as long as they toe the line. This is 
is bewildering. In a country that's supposed to be a democracy, why should experts be afraid to stick to the truth and science and voice their concerns or opinion as advisers? In contrast, medical scientists and medical experts are well respected by the Hong Kong government, which makes wise use of an expert panel to inform public policy. The expert panel members speak freely to the media on a daily basis to keep the public informed and stakeholders advised. It's evident that Hong Kong is practising good governance when it comes to disease control. We are, much, we are in a much safer place than others, such as Ontario in Canada, which has reported 400. 48 deaths at its 128 care homes for the elderly. Many of my friends and contacts think that we are lucky to be in Hong Kong during this pandemic. And that comes uh, from Sherman. Thank you very much in, indeed uh, for that. And uh, here's one more uh, on the subject of the American response. Uh, Bob says... Uh, I have a suggestion for content this week. Given the idiot Trump's recent performance, could we get live comments from his two principal supporters in Hong Kong, Mike and Mark Simon? I'm sure we would all welcome some comic relief. So please give Mike and Mark a chance to comment on the sarcasm, or as most of us think, the total inanity of saying in a press briefing, quote, and then I see the disinfectant, and well, the quote goes on. Please give sufficient notice if Mark is going to be on air and need to be able to control the volume of my speakers when he starts shouting rudely. Good health to all. That comes from Bob. Bob, thank you very much indeed. And, and let's make it clear that they're referring to another mic, not this mic. Not that mic, <laughs> not you. Uh, OK, uh, Professor Cowling, good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you very much indeed for, for joining us uh, today. Uh, first of all, what about China? Uh, uh, that editorial uh, in, in The Lancet, I, I read it myself, uh, it was saying basically that China did all the right things and did them early on, which was a, which was a key point uh, as well. Uh, does that mean that we should basically be following the Chinese example of the Chinese measures that were introduced and the lockdowns and so on? So in Wuhan, the lockdown was extremely effective, but it was extremely effective because of the capacity of the Chinese government to do a very, very uh, extensive lockdown, requiring everybody to stay in their home for weeks and weeks and weeks and supplying them with food and, and other goods. In other parts of the world, that kind of approach is not so easy. So although you mentioned earlier in the editorial it said changes in population behaviour contributed a lot, those were not necessarily voluntary changes in behaviour. Whereas in other countries there's a lot of reliance on voluntary changes in behaviour. Right, so self-discipline, the difference between self-discipline and enforced discipline. Right, and we've seen in the UK, for example, lots of people going out to the parks in London uh, to enjoy the sunshine and then being criticised by the government and told that if you if you continue doing that, they'll have to be stricter about the lockdown. Uh, right. Even though in the park, there's actually not that much chance of transmission occurring. So if you had a society run by epidemiologists, <laughs> it would be like China, would it? It would be, that's how you would approach disease control. <laughs> well, epidemiologists don't, don't run countries. It's politicians that are, that are paid to do that. Can I, can I ask you, Professor, um, to, most of the emphasis so far uh, between sort of curbing the spread of the virus as as opposed to the economic effect but of course there are two other effects aren't there one is mental health of of locking people up for a long time and preventing them uh, socially interacting and another one is is general fitness um with with sports facilities closed down swimming pools closed down so what, yeah. what about those two right. aspects you're right, and in, in European countries, I think there's, there's already evidence that both of these issues are having effects which are going to be long-lasting. Um, but I think in the early stages of the pandemic, the priority for governments has been to, 
stop the health impact. I mean, if we look at New York City, 10,000 deaths already. That could have been us in Hong Kong if we hadn't acted so swiftly. And for reference, the flu season causes about 1,000 deaths. And that's in, in New York? In New York City. Yeah. And the, it's comparable to Hong Kong in many ways. Uh, and it's, it's still got a long way to go. There's just been some early analysis of blood samples in New York suggesting that maybe between 10 and 20% of people there have been infected. And we know that's not nearly enough uh, to provide something like herd immunity. And if the pandemic's allowed to continue, then it still has a long way to go. It does raise the interesting possibility, though, doesn't it, that maybe the number of people who have had the virus in Hong Kong is actually much higher than our figures show. Uh, it could be a little bit higher for sure. And we're starting some analysis of blood samples in Hong Kong to look at exactly that question. But given we haven't had that many people admitted to hospital with pneumonia associated with COVID, we know there can't be that many infections that have been missed because if there were, for example, many more infections in Hong Kong, we would have expected a fraction of those to get pneumonia, need to go to hospital and then be picked up that way. So we can be confident that we haven't missed a lot, but I'm sure we've missed a few. Okay, setting aside China then, looking around the world, where, which countries do you think have done well and what have they done that, that's been effective? I mean, people have talked, for example, of New Zealand, Taiwan, Germany, um, the approaches there being, being pretty effective. Is there you know, some common approach? Yeah, I think Taiwan has done really well and South Korea has also done really well after that early blip with the large outbreak in the religious community and a few other outbreaks. They've now got the numbers down to a low level again through a lot of testing and also this strict public health measures with isolation of cases and quarantine of contacts and the same in Taiwan. Uh, New Zealand probably hasn't had as many importations, but we can ask the other caller about that. So they may have had a, a bit of luck so far in not having so many infections and so many opportunities for transmission to get into the community. Um, but as their weather turns colder, I guess they'll be on high alert. When, when do you think we can start to ease up a bit? I mean, does chlorine in a swimming pool, does it kill the virus? Uh, for, for, I, I don't know whether swimming pools are a place where a lot of transmission would occur, at least through the water, but maybe if there's a lot of people in the pool and one of them was infected, then just by breathing or coughing or something, then, then there'd be an opportunity for transmission. In terms of when we can relax, I think now is a good time to start thinking about relaxing a little bit. But at the same time, we know the virus is not going to stay out of Hong Kong. It's going to keep coming back again and again. And so we have to keep on alert to some degree. And if there was another outbreak and another introduction to Hong Kong into the community, we need to be ready to step up the measures a little bit again. And I think in the next few months, what we're going to see is a relaxation and then maybe a tightening and then a relaxation and tightening and so on. As cases come in and then we get on top of it, so it will be, will be a little bit of yo-yo effect. Yes, I you, think so. You, you mentioned testing and, and, and uh, following up on quarantine con and quarantining any contacts as, uh, as an effective measure. Is that something you can only do, though, at a certain stage of the epidemic? If, if it's kind of out of control, is it just too late to do that kind of thing? Or, or could you do that in the middle of the peak? No, I think the resources required to do that kind of contact tracing and then also to issue quarantine orders really can only be done where the numbers are still small. If the numbers get too large, it becomes too difficult to do that. And I think that's why we've seen lockdowns in European countries, because they need to get the numbers back down again. And then after they've got the numbers down, maybe they can move to something more like what's done in Hong Kong with 
testing and isolation and quarantine of contacts. So it's interesting because you say you, you had to do the lockdown as the last resort in Europe and yet it was the first resort in China. Um, I think at the point when when uh, Wuhan was locked down, this was 22nd, 23rd January, it was still unclear what exactly was happening. And lockdown was kind of a, an urgent measure to get on top of the situation because it looked quite serious. Um, going back in time, I'm not sure if many other cities needed to be locked down in the same way or whether the testing and isolation quarantine would have been sufficient. But I think it was a, a really because of the uncertainty, the fog of war at that point in time that the lockdowns were done across China. Uh, and just, just sorry, just before we go to the case of New Zealand, um, it, it, you know, is the isolation of New Zealand, relative isolation of New Zealand, that's an advantage, is it? You can, it's easier to sort of cut yourself off? Sure, but I think they're also reliant mm. on, on travellers and, and mm. other things coming into New Zealand. So I don't think they could close the border completely. But um, I mean, I'd like to hear some, some comments on, on the situation in New Zealand from the okay. other the other expert. Yeah, well, let's do that now. Uh, and um, Basu is an Associate Professor of Epidemiology at the University of Canterbury. Good morning to you. Thank you very much indeed for, for joining us Hi, today. Good morning. Um, t tell us, first yeah. of all, outline what what, uh, what measures have been taken in New Zealand um, that seem to have worked. I understand, you know, a lockdown was introduced kind of at a, a slightly later stage, but how is that going? Yeah. Oh, I think the lockdown's going well. Uh, what New Zealand did was that they initially started with a uh, social distancing as their main measure for uh, uh, for a few weeks, and then we went into uh, into one of the strictest lockdowns in the world, starting 25th of March, and it was supposed to be lifted last week, but the government decided to extend by one more week. So we are going to be lifting the lockdown partially from a stricter level four lockdown to summer level three, which is going to be easing things a little bit, letting the businesses open. Um, but uh, people would still be, um, you know, still be advised to remain in their home if they can and work from there. And uh, the, the government is then going to reassess everything in around 11th of May, at which point they will then decide whether they want to go down a step lower. Um, and, uh, and actually the, the easing of the lockdown conditions will start something kicking in um, midnight today, that is uh, starting tomorrow morning, and uh, that's how uh, that, that's that's what uh, is going on. Mm. Overall, New Zealand had taken a very strong public health measure to uh, initially flatten the curve as it is, but <clears throat> later on, our study has been to um, quote unquote um, quash the epidemic. In other words, drastically reduce the infection number. What's been the practice of testing uh, in, in New Zealand? Have you been testing widely or just those with symptoms? Yes, yes, yes. And, uh, and of course, as you know, with the, with the, uh, with the establishment of uh, this strategy where we are going to suppress the numbers, uh, New Zealand has uh, massively opened up, uh, increased their um, contact tracing and testing capacity. At the moment, New Zealand is one of the highest uh, uh, testing capacities in the world. I think it, stands around 15 to 17,000 per million population. So it's actually very, very high. So you you would and have caught will, that, yes. This will be continuous. And, and, it, and what happens if people are uh, tested positive? Do they quarantined or treated in hospital or what happens? Yes, uh, they're quarantined. So the, so the, so the, uh, the protocol is, uh, is, is, is pretty standardized now, world over almost, is that um, initially... 
uh, if people had suggestive symptoms or, uh, you know, suspicion of contacts, then they were tested up. If they were, they were found to be um, positive, then they were quarantined. If um, and, and all the contacts were then pressed and they were asked for self-quarantine for 14 days, and then they were again tested. So um, all flights that were coming in to uh, New Zealand, all vessels that were coming in, um, uh, you know, they were, uh, if there were, uh, you know, people in them, they were tested and they were put under quarantine for 14 days. So that was the routine procedure that the government was following. And uh, and then, of course, as you know, there's been, extreme, uh, you know, stepping up of the tests and um, contact tracing as well. So, so what's been effective? What's the secret, or do you think, is, that's worked in, in New Zealand? Is it that high degree of testing? Is it the strength of the lockdown or combination or what? I would say that it's a combination of everything, because what happened is that the three things really seems to work well. One, of course, as the government um, went into planning the... Um, the, uh, the, the uh, quarantine measures and social isolation policies, suppressions, it was quite clearly uh, explained to people, the Prime Minister and the Director of Health Services would uh, appear on national television 1 p.m. every day, explain each and every step. Um, there was full transparency in the, the amount of information that was given out in public domain, uh, plus good enforcement of the quarantine conditions. People were by and large quite um, compliant. Of course, there were some people who'd be breaching their lockdown conditions now and then, but the police was quite vigilant. Uh, people in general were quite happy with the way the government was handling this. There was good political, uh, you know, um, kind of support across the board from both the opposition as well as uh, the ruling government, co uh, you know, coalition. So several of these things kind of work well in handling this. Right. And, um, yeah. Professor, you're... Um your Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, has earned huge international kudos for New Zealand by wow. coming out, as you said, daily. I mean, people talk of her quite uh, very respectfully, that here, here was a political leader who, who told the truth, whether it was good or bad, and, and, and earned people's trust. And in a way, that helped uh, the medical and the epidemiologists such as yourself um, carry more conviction. Yes. Uh, thank you for the, uh, pointing it out. It is indeed correct. That, that indeed happened. Whereas if it's sort of, when you've got a yo-yo like Trump um, fronting the doctors and you see the doctors behind him wincing and cringing as, as he says things that are patently absurd, um, you, you get an opposite effect. The people don't, don't trust the government. So, of course, I mean, it's, 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 um, I, I don't think I'm, I can speak on behalf of other countries, but I think in New Zealand certainly we, that happened, that we, we, everyone kind of rallied behind. But also because, uh, you know, our Prime Minister, uh, you know, appeared to be very kind and uh, compassionate in many of these grounds. Uh, the government really tends to think of many different aspects of the public life uh, before making any, um, any statement, and they kind of strictly went by science and the evidence that was at hand. Uh, so rather than relying on, say, you know, if a vaccine or a medicine is available or not, they straight away plunged into the public health sciences and decided to apply that. Right.
that's quite evidence this, to be honest. So there has been some speculation, yeah, that, that um, women leaders are, are better at treating this, and people cite the example of New Zealand and Taiwan and Germany and so on, which seem to have been yeah. quite effective with a, with a different kind of uh, approach. But, I mean, Australia has yeah. also done well. Is there something, is, is the isolation, or the relative isolation, let's say, of New Zealand and Australia, is that an advantage, or does that play into this, do you think, uh, Professor Bassi? I think it's, a, it's an excellent speculation because, yes, I mean, there is un, uh, undeniable that both Australia and New Zealand are kind of isolated from the rest of the world to some extent. Also remember that this is our summertime. I mean, when that started, so we are, we are heading into winter. So I just don't know how, uh, what role did these things play into the mode of transmission. But the other thing that needs to be uh, kept in mind is this, that because of our relative kind of isolation, almost all not almost, well, all our cases were imported to start with. And the government kind of started moving early to start closing the ports and things like that. So they, uh, you know, that, that might help, might have helped as well. And, um, and yes, yeah, also quite possible that we really didn't have a large uh, quantum of, uh, of, of infection to start with. That might have been instrumental too. Okay, some uh, response uh, from listeners. Uh, Mr. Tang, I have to edit some of these. Mr. Tang says a combination of universal masking, social vigorous testing, contact tracing and isolation, areas which Hong Kong has excelled in, seems the best cure for the COVID-19 pandemic. Most experts claim successful vaccine development is at least a year away, so the good habits of social distancing and so on should continue. While the infection curves worldwide are showing signs of flattening, countries are not out of the woods yet. Uh, all nations should share information about successful containment strategies and manufacturing of vaccine and cure. Some liken the development of vaccine to a race, but it's more like a marathon than a sprint, a marathon that requires cooperation, not competition. A global problem needs global collaboration. It comes uh, from Mr. Tang. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about a vaccine later. Uh, S says, regarding what the countries should learn, first and foremost, do not reprimand those who raise the first alarm. After that, do not try to hide the truth. That comes uh, from S. Paul says lockdowns and social distancing in Hong Kong have not really taken place, or at least the measures taken have been pretty futile. The removal of chairs in restaurants have just bunched people together, and the no more than four groups of people together is a joke the moment we step into lifts. I drove through Yunlong yesterday and the streets were packed. This is not a country in lockdown. Yet, Hong Kong has fared better in terms of cases than, say, the UK. From my perspective, all the claims about the coronavirus and how to deal with it are confusing and often contradictory. Yet it's been used to shut down the world's economy, and I'm now more about the repercussions of that rather than the disease itself. Uh, in the meantime, let's thank Trump for providing great entertainment from his ramblings. Uh, remember, if you inject yourself with bleach, then you're an idiot, and if you don't inject with bleach, then you are an anti-vaxxer. Uh, says Paul... And uh, John says, uh, Dr. Montagne, I think, a Nobel Prize receiver and the person who discovered HIV mentioned that COVID-19 was a man-made virus. Several other scientists in different parts of the world mentioned this as well, but mainstream media disregarded the information. According to him, being the virus man, being the virus man made, it does not replicate himself properly because our system will reject it on the beginning is extremely virulent but with time it will lose strength and disappear if you look at sars in 2003 it happened exactly the same virus disappeared what is the opinion of your guests and why mainstream media like rthk are not talking about this um, that comes from from john uh, professor counting a lot of, uh, some well some speculation about this being a, a man-made uh, virus do you want to um, comment so in <coughs> labs in china and other parts of the world there have been experiments in the past to try to improve naturally occurring viruses to make them better 
in infecting or causing disease so that we can understand which parts of the virus are responsible for improving transmission or improving the, the ability to cause disease. But for this particular coronavirus, there's no evidence that that happens because it's very, very similar to naturally occurring coronaviruses in bats. And I think it's just bad luck for us that the virus is able to spread easily in humans and cause such severe disease. It's like the worst possible combination of virus characteristics that we could imagine. But there's actually no evidence that it's been technically improved in a laboratory somewhere. There's been a, a lot of fake news about. I mean, I received two posts over the weekend, one claiming to quote a Japanese professor uh, who's a Nobel Prize winner, but then another one, uh, luckily for me, with just a few hours later, saying it was fake news. Um, it, it, what, what, how much fake news have you seen? Oh, no, there's, there's all, all kinds of news going around that, that's difficult to believe on this topic and also on other topics. I think it's difficult nowadays to distinguish what's true, true because there's so much fake news about all the time. And both Trump and Pompeo have said uh, that they're investigating whether this was designed by, by China as a, as a war weapon. I think what, what they also said is they're investigating whether it was a leak of a naturally occurring virus from the laboratory in Wuhan, which does a lot of research on those naturally occurring viruses. As I said before, there's absolutely no evidence that this was a creation. This virus was created right. in the laboratory to be a better kind of virus. Okay, well, thank you very much indeed for, for joining us this morning uh, to uh, Dr. Arundam Basu, Associate Professor of Epidemiology and Environmental Health at the University of Canterbury. Uh, Professor Cowling is, is uh, staying with us, uh, and we're also going to be joined uh, by uh, Dr. Kwok and uh, uh, another uh, health Dr. systems yep. specialist from uh, Malaysia, uh, who's got his own views, I think, on, on herd immunity and uh, the uh, role of a vaccine. Uh, in the second part of the programme, after 9 o'clock, do uh, comment by emailing backchat.rthk.h. We'll do our best to read out your messages. Um, or you can uh, send a message to our Facebook page and share it there. And everyone can see it. Backchat on RTHK Radio 3 um, is the Facebook page. Uh, quick look at the weather now before the news at 9 o'clock. Sunny periods and haze forecast for today. It's going to be hot and dry during the day with temperatures getting up today to 28 degrees with light winds and the outlook warm with sunny periods in the next couple of days too. 24 degrees now. Humidity is at 81%. China and India. The biggest spender is the United States, which accounts for 38% of the total. Russia is fourth and Saudi Arabia fifth. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. This is Bank Chat on a uh, Monday morning, first one of the uh, week. We're continuing to talk about uh, an international comparison of how different countries are, are dealing with the uh, virus. Uh, uh, I'm Hugh Tiverton. Your co-host today is uh, Mike Rouse. Uh, our email address is backchat at rthk.hk or you can call us on, on 233-88266 or, or go to our Facebook page as well, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, and share your thoughts, your questions and your comments. Uh, we're joined now, as we were in the first part, 
of the programme this morning by Professor Ben Cowling, Head of the Division of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the University of Hong Kong. Also joined now by Dr Yapwei Aoun, who's Executive Director at Quanticlear Solutions, a health systems specialist and uh, advisor to the former Malaysian Minister of Health for uh, uh, his take and uh, also his view on uh, what's happening uh, in that region. Once again, backchat.rthk.hk is our email address. Okay, a few, a few uh, emails on uh, related topics uh, to share before we get to the uh, discussion. Uh, Peter sends us a correspondence that he's had with uh, the uh, immigration uh, department. Uh, he was uh, saying that his wife, uh, who's in Australia, uh, was due back uh, to fly to back to Hong Kong and uh, was asking whether instead of being taken to the Regan, Regal Orient Hotel uh, overnight pending the result of her uh, COVID-19 test on arrival, uh, could go straight home um, because uh, Australia uh, has uh, very low numbers of infection uh, compared to uh, uh, other places and uh, um, she was kind of brushed aside by the uh, uh, immigration department uh, who said you may wish to contact the Department of Health for more information. So if anyone's got any thoughts uh, on that. Uh, Leon says, recent data unequivocally shows that most of our cases are imported, particularly from the UK. Thankfully, the Hong Kong government's testing policy at Asia World Expo for inbound travellers has successfully blocked these infected people from spreading the virus to the public. But these individuals have nonetheless been able to spread their germs to other passengers during their lengthy journey in the close surroundings of an aircraft. To prevent this risk, why doesn't Hong Kong government carry out tests on passengers before they're allowed to get on a flight? I appreciate this might be logistically challenging, especially in less developed countries from where we have fewer visitors. But for those European and North American countries from where most of our imported cases are arriving, this should be considered. For example, anyone who's planning to fly to Hong Kong from UK should be required to visit a designated testing centre in London or Manchester 24 hours before flying when they will be tested at the Hong Kong government's expense for the virus. If they're positive, they will be sent to an NHS hospital. If they're negative, they are free to fly. This process will sharply reduce the risk of virus spread to fellow passengers. That's from uh, Leon. And uh, Bowen says, with the subject line, the conflation of objective criticisms and racial bigotry, one sometimes hears complaints about racist bigotry being behind criticisms of the consumption of wildlife animals and the proliferation of the trade in wet markets in the mainland. It's hoped that complainants do not get too worked up because the criticism here is not so much about the consumption of the animals as it is about the practice of packing several different species of them into an unhygienic environment and in close proximity to each other as well as to a steady stream of humans thronging these places. The consumption of wildlife animals per se is acceptable if it doesn't threaten the survival of any species. The trade itself is sufficiently regulated, the animals caught are kept are kept and killed in appropriate and humane ways, and the slaughtered animals are prepared and cooked properly. While elements of racism probably exist in the present context among some people, one shouldn't completely conflate the evils of racism and sober and objective criticism of practices which have fostered the mutation of viruses and enabled their transmission to humans with catastrophic consequences. One of the best ways to tackle racism is to shun and ignore it and focus on the facts, not to extend and expand its existence by uncritically accepting the exaggerated and or hugely overestimated significance that has been attributed to the concept of race by others. Instead of responding on the level of why different races have different cultures and habits, which will affirm the exaggerated significance of race, try and say something like, we are all attracted to exotic things, culinary and otherwise at times. These wet markets are a bit of a mess. We'll do our bit to clean them up. Hatred breeds more hatred. Counter-racist attacks breed more racism. 
That comes from Bowen. Thank you much indeed for that. Back chat at rthk.hk is our, our email address. Uh, Dr. Yap, maybe if we could start with you. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you very much indeed for, for, for joining us. Um, you had an interesting piece uh, published uh, uh, around the world. We saw it in the South China Morning Post about um, herd in, immunity and, and, uh, and so on and different, right. different approaches around the world. Um, what I kind of got from that is that one way or another, we, we, you, countries have got to get herd immunity. Is that right? Uh, in the end, uh, that's the only thing that will uh, solve the problem. Yeah, thanks so much, you and Mike, for inviting me to this program. Yeah, do allow me to, if you if you could, uh, just to really correct some of the terms used uh, on herd immunity and to just define what an exit looks like, if that's okay. Um, to me, I'm, I'm really quite disappointed with how the term herd immunity has been used to refer to a strategy and really a non-strategy of essentially doing nothing while the population, including high-risk groups and health workers, get ravaged by COVID-19. So now whenever anyone hears the term herd immunity, or when you just even see it written in any article, there's such a strong association with the maltreatment of human life by treating people like a herd. But to me, that's a total butchering of this otherwise uh, wonderful epidemiological concept. I, I really hope people can just unlearn the association be between irresponsible crash and burn, non-strategies for dealing with COVID, and the term herd immunity. Prior to COVID, uh, if you don't mind me explaining, yeah, go ahead. Uh, herd immunity was just a perfectly decent, positive term. It meant safety in numbers, strength as a herd, and not treating people as if they're cattle. Herd immunity means that even if you cannot attain, like I say, 100% vaccination rates, and I, and I grew in vaccination here, there's protection even for those who for some reason or not have not been able to be vaccinated. And why is this a case? Well, let's take the analogy of the forest fire. Susceptible people who are non-immune these people are like kindling for the fire. If the kindling is very sparse, a fire cannot be sustained even though there are many sparks, even though the weather is very hot, and even though there are just a few stray dry leaves on the forest floor. So I tried to visualize the power of herd immunity as a child in the recent article that you mentioned. Uh, and to me, this is the true exit of COVID-19. Even if new infections are introduced or reintroduced, it will just naturally fizzle out. So to me, herd immunity is a destination. It is not a strategy. And let me say that again. Herd immunity is a destination, not a strategy. It's a stable destination where all strategies, whether through vaccination or infection, ultimately arrive at. And more importantly, it takes the long view of what happens. And if we look at what happened 100 years ago in the 1918 to 1920 influenza pandemic, it took three years for that pandemic to die out, and there were three peaks. We cannot just be looking at what happens in the initial first peak or in the initial first few months. Right. So Do you think the concept of herd immunity got a got a bad press because it was Absolutely, being Mike. used in in the UK especially as a strategy it was sort of more yeah, or less absolutely. let it run wild and then we'll end up with 80% or something of the population will have experienced the virus and that's our strategy meanwhile <laughs> many thousands of people absolutely. will have died yes that, that, that's exactly my view. It's, it's really been butchered by a government which I didn't really want to name at the start, um, and it's been spent. What was actually has, uh, it's a very valid epidemiological concept, so if you just, it has this morsel of truth, there's, there's a nice ring to it, but really it does not require anybody to be unnecessarily subjected to mortality or morbidity. For example, you can get herd immunity through vaccination, that's routine. And even if you do choose the infection route, which is another important thing to consider, it does not mean just doing nothing and letting hospitals get overwhelmed, health workers 
protect themselves because there's a, there's a lack of masks, etc. And high-risk groups not even being protected. That's really not what herd immunity is about. Right. Well, the UK said, yeah, is, is the corollary of that that in Hong Kong, where we've had very, very mm-hmm. few infections, we've kept down the infections, are you saying in the end uh, we will have to... If we'll either have to wait for a vaccine, uh, or it'll in the end we're going to have to take the lid off the bottle, and everything, and it'll, you know, we will get lots of infections. Yeah, so I think that's one of the things which sent a chill down my spine when I was working together with my co-author, uh, Dr. Daisy, uh, on these simulations. It's just realizing that thinking of just the initial first wave of infections and thinking that if we succeed to just bring cases down and define success. It's just bringing cases down, as a lot of countries in East Asia seem to be doing. Um, we are not taking enough of the lessons from the 1918 to 1920 influenza pandemic uh, to heart. Uh, in that one, there were three peaks over three years. Um, and the largest peak was not the first peak. It was actually the second peak. Right. Okay. We do need to take the long view. All right. Professor Cowling, do you agree, disagree? Respectfully. Well, sure. There wasn't a vaccine, though, in 1918 to 19, and we are hoping that we're going to get a vaccine at some point. So in Hong Kong, I think we will achieve herd immunity through vaccination eventually. I don't think we're going to take the, the, the cork out of the bottle and just allow COVID to, to, to spread through the population. Given we're so densely populated, it's going to be difficult to protect the vulnerable elderly in Hong Kong. And as I mentioned earlier, look at New York. Their epidemic's still in an early stage, and they've already got 10,000 COVID deaths in New York City, and there's still a long way for the epidemic to go if it's going to naturally reach a level of, of infections that would correspond to herd immunity. Okay, uh, some uh, emails, interesting emails. All right, Jim says, uh, one must applaud the way in which the people of Hong Kong have met the challenge of dealing with the coronavirus through distancing, cleanliness, wearing of masks. And may I say hiking is exhilarating to monitor the huge number of people of all ages who have discovered the natural beauty of Hong Kong. Uh, it's therefore disheartening for the vast majority of Hong Kong people, in light of the sacrifices they have made, to see their efforts in keeping their families and cities together thwarted by leaders, pro and anti-government, who put their own narrow interests before those of the community. Shame on all your houses. That comes from uh, Jim. Uh, Alan says, today most of the emails read out on the show are praising China's approach to repress the virus. The contrast is with the buffoon Trump, who has turned it into a disaster. The message is, of course, that repression and authoritarianism is the solution to that and every issue of governance. However, they, of course, ignore the successes of Taiwan, New Zealand, for instance, who did not wield people's doors, not weld people's doors closed. Uh, and, of course, then they attack Western media and politicians for politicising the virus, for blaming poor and China, ignoring the facts of the initial cover-up, locking up doctors who tried to warn them that made a worldwide pandemic inevitable, and now they're actively spreading conspiracy theories to blame foreigners, buy a warfare, etc., when it's clear it came out of a wet market, same as SARS. Incidentally, calling it the China virus is a bad idea, not only because it provokes attacks on overseas Chinese, but it's imprecise. There are so many China viruses, and will probably be more, since China will only react slowly and not prevent such outbreaks, and well-founded fear of punishment may covering up the first option that is uh, Alan's take and uh, John who uh, was uh, talking earlier about whether it was a uh, man-made uh, John says Professor um, Montagnier uh, Montanagier I'm not sure how you pronounce that uh, went public on TV explaining why it is a man-made virus this is a man that spent his life studying viruses and he discovered HIV why a man of his stature will say something that is fake news Dr Shiva said the same several papers were published but then removed may I know why these claims are not further investigated vaccine right this is definitely the solution to make billions of dollars it's amazing how the fake news is used to stop anything stop 
start looking around, use your brain, uh, says John. Mike says, didn't I see an item on RTHK where hotel employees walk into a box with bright UV lighting and a mist spray of disinfectant to neutralise and kill any virus on one's clothing or body? Isn't it strange that no one has made the connection of possible universal prevention measures all passengers should use? I really think Trump's delusion syndrome affects haters more than rational thinkers bob take a chill pill trump isn't infallible he is just the hard hardest working president we've had throwing out ideas do you have any idea bob or only critical comments and mike have you put on a mask yet talk about stupid that comes from mike uh and john a different john says would activated charcoal be useful in removing the virus from the body it's used for removing chemical and food poisons just wondered if it would help in any way that comes from john uh dr kwok Karki uh, is with us civic party lawmaker dr kwok good morning to you good morning uh we, let's just pick up on that that last one and maybe um you know trump's uh, musings or whatever you want to call it about about uh, about different treatment measures um uh yeah, I don't know what the general point would be. First of all, uh, activated charcoal. Let's talk about that. Disinfectant, uh, things like that. Um, have any of them proved to be successful, to be useful in any way? <laughs> I think none of them has actually proven to be useful. The, as you know, the COVID-19 is a viral disease. So um, no other things better than, at the end of the day, vaccine will be uh, giving immunity, number one. And right now what we can do is... Uh, cover our uh, faces with a surgical mask if we can wash our hands. And the best uh, strategy towards this is still, you know, avoid catching the infection until the vaccine has been uh, discovered and actually has been put safely in use by the human being. Uh, back to the issue whether we are now prepared to, um, you know, to resume the uh, normal activities. I think one of the very interesting news you must uh, observe is the new introduction of the government of Samzhan. Doing uh, starting from this week, they will allow, they will request all those coming from uh, like Hong Kong uh, into mainland to observe the 14 days quarantine before they was allowed to, you know, get into touch, get into the city. So I think that is very interesting uh, uh, new restriction, meaning that. Um, no matter how much you have been done in the community, the best thing that we can rely on is still at the border. So right now in Hong Kong, yes, we are seeing, you know, three uh, days in a week, we don't have any new cases. And number two, it seems it's a drop in the community spread so far. But because mostly we are doing a lot in the border and at the community level, so that's why we can achieve such a low, relatively low uh, infection rate and relatively low mortality rate. But this can be reversed, uh, you know, in no time. If, if we're going to lift all the bans at the border, if we are going to lift all the bans at the community level, I think the figures will jump up, you know, in no time. So what we need to do is not only that we cannot, uh, you know, relax on the border, but we need to strengthen it uh, more because we are seeing uh, in the near future, there may be some more uh, we, uh, lifting of the bands within the mainland China. I don't know how, you know, how long do they will asking for, you know, lifting the band uh, in at the Hong Kong border, like the Samsung Bay or any other border in Hong Kong. If that happens, you know, we are facing another 
uncertain period whereby you know the virus can come in many places, including mainland uh, in a very short period of time. You know, we have been faced with difficulty of detecting the uh, COVID-19 because we we knew that uh, the number one, the incubation period can be long, and number two, a lot of these invisible patients they have no symptoms at all, but they carry the virus and they will get in touch of the high with patient like the elderly patient, patient with uh, chronic diseases, and by doing so, they will spread the disease. You know, thus we have learned from in right. the North Point in Hong Kong. So, we we uh, you 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 know the 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 so-called sense of security is very short term. Doctor Kwok, you seem to be implying that we're in for a very long period of of border shutdown. Uh, yes, we need to, and that is the only way. You know, globally. Globally, what we are seeing is, you're seeing is 2.9 million people getting infected. Uh, although the speed of the spread of the new cases seems to uh, flatten, but it doesn't mean, you know, the disease will die off. A lot has been attributed to, you know, the, shut, the lockdown uh, policy in many countries. If this country is going to leave the lockdown, like in United States, in New York, in New York City, in Europe, they are doing a lot to leave the ban. But if they if they leave the ban too early, the surge of the new cases will definitely coming become a fact. You know, within a short period of time. But if, if you... we leave the ban on our border, it means you know we are welcoming new cases into Hong Kong. If you have two adjacent communities, both of which have very very low prevalence. Of, of new cases, couldn't they be allowed to have some interaction? Uh, of course they can, but based on the fact that we need to make sure that all those coming back or coming from, you know, from mainland or Macau, they need to be tested negative before they were allowed to get into. The best way is not to quarantine every single person in 14 days in a vaccinated uh, places. Uh, right. As we are having you know, a new technology that we can uh, test it, all the cases within two hours uh, has been, you know, using in uh, in the emergency room in the uh, Queen Elizabeth Hospital. So if we can, you know, uh, set up this facility at the borders, we are able to test all coming visitors within two hours. And if we can make sure that all those coming from, no matter from mainland or Macau, they can be tested negative before they are allowed to get into Hong Kong. We are safe, then we can, you know, try to leave the band bit by bit, uh, placing on the capacity of our, you know, laboratory to do the test. This is the most important step because what, no matter how much we are doing at the community level, if we leave the band on the border, we will be inviting uh, infected cases from. Uh, whoever country, whatever countries, we are get, we'll get into trouble very soon. Okay. Do- Dr. Yap, tell, tell us what's been happening in, in Malaysia. The figures are, are relatively good, aren't they? If you look at things like deaths per, you know, per head of population, uh, Malaysia is sort of uh, comparable to Australia um, right. and, and fairly good. What kind of measures have been, uh, have been employed in Malaysia and also, of course, in Singapore? Tell us, remind us what's been happening there as well. Well, um, I think the thing that Malaysia did really well was to institute a lockdown at an early stage. Um, and one good thing about that is it really suppressed the, num- the amount of numbers that we have. But let me give an alternative view. Um, if we only suppress uh, 
any country, uh, COVID cases, what we are actually doing, if that's the only intervention, is to postpone uh, ultimate outbreak. Once you let it go, either through uh, uh, infections pre-existing in the community or imported infections, uh, COVID-19 is very contagious and you, and you expand. So I think throughout the world, and not just Malaysia, and Malaysia is considering it, uh, loosening up the, some, of the, some of the controls in order to restart its economy, I think that would be the asset test. It's how you open up using right. really smart strategies. What's Malaysia, uh, done, what's Malaysia done on the immigration front? Uh, is it easy to uh, fly in, or are you two weeks quarantine, or what? Well, currently, uh, Malaysians are not allowed to fly out, and foreigners are not allowed to fly in. So, if you're if you're Malaysian, you can return back, and if you do, they'll check you and they'll quarantine you. Um, if you're from specific countries, uh, but if you if you want to leave the country, you can do so. That's the current that's the current status of the of the rules, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and the key question is, what happens later on? Are we going to keep that, and for for how long? Uh, Mike, I think you asked the question to Dr. Kwok about: Are we just going to keep borders closed for for a long, long time? I think that's a very valid question to ask a lot of countries. That's right, because the economic da- damage, which has already been very severe, if we right. if we can't resume international business and international trade and so on, um, this right. is this is in we're in for the long haul. Right. And can I just say there are broadly two reasonable strategies in my mind. One is what it sounds like Hong Kong is trying to do, which is just to keep cases at really the barest minimum with the expectation that at some point there's going to be a vaccine or breakthrough in treatment, either antivirals or, or et cetera. Now, if this actually does materialize and you do get a vaccine, it's really the best performing strategy in terms of life space. But there are really two uncertainties. One is what if there's no vaccine at the end of the day? And the other is, and this may not be so much the case for Hong Kong, but for a lot of developing countries, are you really able to follow through on this strategy of just tight controls for months, for weeks initially, then for months, six months, one year? Are you really able to sustain that? Some of the analysis that we've done showed that if countries just keep trying to do that with the expectation of vaccine, and then the society just buckles and is unable to sustain those measures, and measures just get lifted, that disorder in the, in the community, uh, they will be hit both by the economic damage of those lockdowns plus the deaths and, mor- and morbidity associated with just loosening it up at the last moment right. and all the resources are depleted. Yeah, I think we, we so saw... really something to avoid. We, well, I think the best guide is the, is the beach turnout um, on, on, the next com- on the coming weekend. I, I take right. your point that, that at some point that people's patience just snaps and they're just right. gonna, it's a sunny day, they're going to go out. Um, right. And that's the end of it. I, you know, I've been bottled up for two, three, right. four months, and, and I'm going to I'm going to go swimming. <laughs> and for many countries in the world, especially developing ones, it may not just be recreational issues. Right. Yeah, people are actually starving. Women are being dashed up at homes. So I hear in some countries uh, in South Asia. So this is this are this are these are not things that you can just keep forever and ever. And these are not issues which are just the economy versus health. It is health versus public health. Things to do with starvation and food security, things to do with mental health. Uh, things about people missing their hospital appointments for other non-COVID cases. So I think you need to think carefully about whether we can really sustain very strong measures for a long, long period of time uh, in order to wait for a vaccine. 
which there is no certainty. Yeah, of course, although of course in Hong Kong we've had relatively weak measures. I mean, compared to to many places, we have no no compulsory yeah. lockdown and businesses and, and people can, can continue to work. And Schools have been closed. There's still no requirement to wear a mask on public transport. No, that's true. Uh, although. Anyway, <laughs> okay. Here's an email from from Phil that Professor Cowling you might want to address. Uh, Phil says, uh, "What are the ongoing measures to assess the development of herd immunity within the Hong Kong community?" Uh, and second, Hong Kongers have a rather unique immunological profile. We live in very close proximity to one another. We are readily exposed to and overcome virulent viruses, uh, and are administered huge amounts of medicine and antibio antibiotics. Being exposed to SARS, could this history account for the low infection rate? Those questions from Phil. Any answers, Professor Cowling? Uh, so we're looking in blood samples collected from people in Hong Kong recently and also in the past, and there's no evidence at the present of any substantial population immunity against COVID from maybe things that have gone on in the past. And in the past three months, there's no evidence yet that there's been a, any significant number of infections. I think we're still at a very low number of infections in the community, so still very vulnerable if there was to be a local outbreak, local epidemic, um, I don't think, you know, those factors mentioned mm. would contribute to protection against COVID-19. Can I ask about mortality rate? Because we now have a lot more experience in a lot more countries, a lot more cases. And mm. previously, people were sort of speculating anything from, from 1% to 30%. Are we beginning to settle now on, on where we, what we think it is? Yeah, it's looking more like between 0.1% and 1% of infections, maybe 0.5%, maybe 0.5%. And then a place that gets heavily affected would expect more than 50% of its population to be infected if nothing was done, if nothing was done. And so you multiply all those numbers together, you get an, an estimate of how many deaths might occur for places that, that don't do very much or we're not able to do very much of course in hong kong we're not going to let that happen Do dr kwok was saying i think a, a key question for us now is the is the question of border control um mm. people coming in going uh, people coming into to hong kong do you agree with that and what do you think sh how what do you think we should do at the the border with the mainland yeah so we certainly got to got to look at it i think last year typical day 300,000 people crossing the border i'm not sure if we have the capacity for 300,000 tests and one other issue is that even if you test negative at the border, it doesn't mean you're not infected. It just means you're not shedding virus at that point in time. The incubation period is up to 14 days. And so people could be negative at the border, come in, but then develop symptoms, develop virus shedding a few days later or a week later. So that's why we have the home quarantine for 14 days, because even people are tested at the border negative, they still may be infected and, and just show up later with virus shedding and and with symptoms. I think what we could consider, though, is looking at mutual agreements with places like Macau or Taiwan, where the numbers are really very low, and say that we have a, a deal with them, that we can go there, they can come here, as long as they don't go anywhere else, because then that's, uh, there's some assurance that there's not going to be spread of infections among places that are keeping the numbers of cases very, very low. And then if we go to Macau, when we come back, maybe we don't need to do 14-day home quarantine we can have some other kind of less restrictive measure. I think that would be worth considering.
All right, some more emails from listeners to, to finish off. Mike says, uh, the perfect storm. Governments have waited for the opportunity to control its people. It would almost seem that this virus is a heaven sent for those governments that love control, training people to obey. That's from uh, Mike. Uh, and uh, John says, with regard to your listeners citing a French professor, Luc Montagnier, as the source for evidence that there are engineered genetic sequences in the no novel coronavirus, uh, Luc Montagnier is now 88 years old. He's taken to promoting a wide range of widely discredited theories, such as that autism is caused by bacteria that emit electromagnetic waves. Articles which repeat Montagnier's claims without critically evaluating their veracity uh, exhibit the common appeal to authority fallacy, which something is assumed to be true simply because the person who's saying it is considered to be an expert. Uh, that's a quote from healthfeedback.org. Uh, with regard to the claimed science, other published analyses have concluded that the genetic sequences claimed to have been found in the COVID-19, quote, are not insertions, but are rather common sequences found in numerous other organisms, such as bacteria and parasites. Therefore, the existence of these sequences does not provide evidence of a link to HIV, nor that scientists purposely inserted HIV sequences into the SARS-CoV-2. Uh, uh, genome. Uh, and Andrew says, your correspondent John asks us to use our brain, then cites celebrated anti-vaxxer and self-proclaimed inventor of email. Spoiler alert, he didn't. Dr Shiva as his expert virologist. Just because someone has doctor in front of their name doesn't automatically make them credible. I'd sooner take medical advice from Dr Pepper. The tinfoil hat at Brigade are out in force this morning. That comes uh, from uh, Andrew. Thank you very much indeed for those messages. Thank you very much indeed to our guests this morning to, to Professor Cowling, uh, head of the Division of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the University of Hong Kong, Dr. Kwok Kaki, a Civic Party lawmaker, and Dr. Yap Wai Aung, who's the uh, Executive Director at Quanticlear Solutions, a health system specialist and advisor to the former Malaysian Minister of Health. Thank you all very much indeed. Mike, many thanks to you. A very educational programme. I think we learned something this morning. I hope so. The weather, sunny periods and haze, hot and dry during the day. Temperatures up to about 28 degrees. Warm with sunny periods in the next couple of days, 24 degrees now. Humidity, 78%. To fight the virus together we must protect ourselves and others and reduce social contact stay at home as far as possible avoid social gatherings and don't go to crowded places work from home if feasible don't shake hands with others we should also avoid meal gatherings let's adopt these measures to prevent the spread of novel coronavirus in the community for more information on fighting the virus visit chp.gov.hk Nine thirty-four. the news now with Samantha Butler. A member of the Medical Association says Hong Kong can consider relaxing social distancing measures with the coronavirus situation now stabilising. Dr Leung Chi Chu also says schools could possibly resume next week after university entrance exams are over. The governor of the U.S. state of Maryland says his administration received hundreds of calls from residents asking about injecting or ingesting disinfectant after President Trump speculated it could treat coronavirus. Larry Hogan, who's from the president's Republican Party, said they were wondering whether it could protect them. And global spending on defence has risen to its highest level since the financial crisis of 2008. For the first time, two of the top three spenders are Asian, China and India. The biggest spender is the United States. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. Well, he talks to journals as the stories unfold. Musos and actors. Good morning. No matter young or that old. There's tons of stuff going on. Moves them through the studio.